You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Julie and Julia don't get burnt by food movies. Adam Thomas and Thomas and Rihanna will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, here to tell you about the joy of reheating a breakfast burrito. It's so delightful. And I am Adam Thomas, and I'm going to do, for everyone that's listening on YouTube, what I think might be the best Stanley Tucci impression of all time. I'm Stanley Tucci. Y'all want a waffle? Is Stanley Tucci in the room? <laughs> pretty good. I'm, I'm yeah, stunned. I did not good. know we got him. It's a pretty good get for a guest, Adam. I can't believe you did yeah, that. It's airtight. Yeah. Airtight. Yeah, we can finally ask him all those lovely bones questions we've been wanting to ask him for, for years. Uh, but, Adam, you and I aren't the only ones here because we have um, a guest with us today. Someone who's been a guest on a lot of episodes of the show. Uh, this is his seventh time on the show. Uh, we Holy shit. I know, yeah. He's he's our most recurring guest. He is Mr. Scott Johnson. Scott, welcome to the show. And please don't do what you're doing in the pre-show and just like throwing kitchen utensils at us like you were Gordon Ramsay. Please don't do that. Well, I will be your blue page special today, and I will not be throwing dishes at you, you dirty donkeys. Oh, oh no. <laughs> so if you're, when you get a celebrity chef, he's on the show seven times, and he thinks he's king of the fucking shithouse. Yeah, fuck this guy. <laughs> I'm leaving. Oh, no. Oh, got burnt. Totally got burnt by Scott. But Scott, welcome back. As we mentioned, you've been on quite a few times. And uh, you actually uh, are on this episode because you suggested the topic for this week, which, if you're new, anybody listening, every week Adam and I cover uh, two movies based around a topic um, that we randomly select the movies for. But we, and Scott suggested this topic, which in honor of this week we're posting this is Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving to our uh, U.S. residents out there. Um, you came up with the idea of movies about food, which is a pretty solid subject. Why did you want to cover that in particular, Scott? Uh, I picked this for two different reasons. Uh, one, you all covered the best Thanksgiving movie, which was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And second off, I would say that I think the way we view food, as well as the way that audio and visual mediums have evolved is really fascinating, especially because we learn more about like what food is socially, politically, culturally, the way we discover them. And I think that makes food itself such an interesting subject for drama and study and learning a lot about a person. And these days you can just watch food anywhere, be it YouTube or the Food Network or just watching movies about it, there's so much you can get from someone telling a story about what they made and what they like to eat. That is true, yeah, especially you can make food look cinematic if nothing else. Like, we're not covering any animated films as of, of on this particular episode, but if you watch, like, any Studio Ghibli movie and you look at that fucking food, 
you're just like, damn, I know this is like drawn on paper, but I want to eat some of that shit. That's the thing is even it transcends like the medium to where it could be like totally fake looking food, but you're still like enraptured. Like, I want to eat that. Like they're both the movies we're covering today to some extent, especially uh, the good one. Um, is not one you want to watch on an empty stomach. Because you're just like, oh, God, it looks so good. Uh, but would you generally agree with uh, all that, Adam, about food as a cinematic uh, thing to show off? Oh, yeah, man. And especially, you, it, there's, like, a whole new, you know, pop culture thing around food and even, you know, celebrity chefs and, you know, like, how big is Hot Ones and First We Feast and, and you know all the different cooking shows that are on netflix there's like a new one every fucking week and then you had you know a guy like anthony bourdain so hugely celebrated and still looked a bit fondly there's something about it it's much like film and movies you know it's a it can be a communal experience where you go to the theater to see something with somebody and, and you just enjoy it and love it it brings you closer together it's the same way with cooking a meal for some with somebody or for somebody it, it, it very much intrinsically ties into sort of a, a social experience yeah, and I think both the films we're talking about today cover a lot of that ground. Or even, like, the that whole idea you say it's, like, a new concept. I guess it's, like, relatively new. But for at least, like, since the dawn of the new millennium, like, the celebrity chef has been such a huge thing. Like, they get so popular that, like, Gordon Ramsay is a producer on one of the two movies we're talking about today. Like, that's how much power they can eventually wield. Or even, like, Anthony Bourdain who, like, along with being, obviously, like, having, like, the documentary series and the documentaries that he also put out, he was also a guy who talked a lot about movies anyway. Yeah, you can kind of look at Julia Child as the first, like, worldwide known celebrity chef, but the 90s is where that really exploded because you have people like, uh, people on Food Network, like Emeril Lagasse, Alton Brown, and Wolfgang Puck, and Nigel Lawson, and then there's people like Lydia Bastianish and Jacques Pepin, and then the whole, like, rock star celebrity chef idea grows with gordon ramsay and you can basically find any sort of interesting food because we've kind of realized how western the perspective is is on like showing off food especially like very fancy expensive like artistic michelin star food but then there's just so much more we seem to learn every day about how food can be discovered and enjoyed and people who like might come from the outskirts of nowhere have this amazing thing that you've never discovered discovered until now honestly like one of my favorite cooking shows even though the guy is kind of a meme but i think he's really embraced it and just kind of like done a lot of good in the world with it uh guy theory's diners drive-ins and dives despite how much of a fucking joke of a show it kind of is when you actually watch that show it's really fucking entertaining and you get like a real sense of community when he just comes in he's like oh this is great i love it it's just like oh this frosted tip angel man <laughs> coming in and blessing oh, yeah. my food you want to live in flavor town you know what i mean <laughs> damn right my dream these wings are the ultimate slamma jamma they are out of bounds <laughs> Oh, when's when's the Guy Fieri biopic coming, guys? Come on. Jonah Hill's Jerry Garcia. Give me a break. Give me Jonah Hill's Jerry's <laughs> fucking Guy Fieri. You know. The problem is that if you get him to do that, it would just kind of be like him doing his this is the end version of himself, but in Guy Fieri cosplay. That's true. <laughs> That's all it would really be. <laughs> uh, well, we're not talking about Mr. Fieri, despite how much we want to today, because uh, we're talking about two movies we select at the end of our last episode, randomly, uh, we had uh, two bad picks from Adam we chose between and ended up getting burnt. And uh, then we also had two good picks, and we ended up with uh, my good choice of Julie and Julia. But we're going to start first uh, with burnt. 
I was 16, I quit school. I saved just enough for a one-way ticket to Paris. Maybe I just wanted it really bad, and then when I got it too early, I didn't know how to hold on to it. What do you want? I'm going to run the best restaurant in the world. Are you sure he's famous? If you're a chef, he's like the Rolling Stones. I don't want my restaurant to be a place where you come and eat. I want people to sit at that table and be sick with longing. So, where you been? Louisiana. Doing what? Sniffing, snorting, injecting. If you try to start a new restaurant, there are at least a dozen people who will try to have you killed. The kitchen's the only place I've ever felt like I really belonged. I loved every minute of it, the heat, the pressure, the violence. So, Burnt came out uh, October 30th, 2015, uh, from writer Stephen Knight, who we've covered uh, his film Serenity on the show, uh, one of our favorites. Yeah, yeah that's a movie. Yes, uh, and it was directed by a guy named John Wells, who's directed like a couple other like smaller movies. But interestingly, this is another one of those movies, we've talked about this thing plenty of times, that was on the Hollywood Blacklist. Where, if you don't know, every year there's a survey that's put out from like industry people about what are the best unproduced scripts every year. And 2007, this was on that list along with uh, a few titles that were also on there. Uh, Burn After Reading, The Town, Jennifer's Body, The Wrestler, The Revenant, Selma, and The Wolf of Wall Street. So it was a pretty hot script to the point where a lot of people were involved in the production at certain points, including David Fincher was going to make this with Keanu Reeves in the main role, amongst, like, several uh, different directors that almost happened. That would have been interesting. It would have been something. <laughs> Definitely would have been something. It would have been more interesting than what we got. Yes, because uh, that's the thing, is that Burnt, despite all that sort of interest and buzz around the script, um, it ended up coming out in 2015 to no real interest, like, just sort of like an apathy, and just kind of got dumped out there to no acclaim or fascination or even... Huge derision, just kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. But we watched it, and Adam, it was your choice. Uh, so why don't you tell uh-huh. people a bit about Burnt, like the general plot summary, and then uh, go into your initial thoughts on it. All right, so Burnt follows Adam Johnson, I had no relation, uh, who <laughs> is played by... <laughs> was played by Bentley Cooper. You know, real quick, though, sidebar, it was so funny we were watching this, it keeps saying Adam, and then the, my girl's name is Lily, and my daughter was, like, just having a field day with it. Uh, anyways, so Adam Johnson, uh, played by Bradley Cooper, is, like, a disgraced chef. He was a superstar chef in uh, Paris, uh, but then he got, like, his ego got the better of him, he got on drugs, he was a womanizer, just stole from people, did all this stuff, and now he's back after like three years he's back after shucking a million oysters as self-punishment baby and he's back in london and he's trying to get his third star for you know the michelin rating and it's uh basically like his story of redemption through you know these relationships that you know he's either repairing or now forming so i will say for the first like 35 minutes of this movie when it was basically like fucking gordon ramsay's oceans 11 like this is kind of fun where he's getting all these different characters ones in prison you know that all this, like all right i could see yeah, yeah okay cool cool and then it just turned into a melodramatic mess it's a very messy kitchen of a movie i can, <laughs> yeah, I can... it really fucking is it's a nightmare of a kitchen oh, oh i get it like diners drive-ins and dives now scott yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... 
<laughs> Scott, what about, like, have you, had you seen this movie before? Had you heard of it before you, we tasked you to watch it? I had heard about it. I never saw it because it was very meh. Also, fuck you, Adam. His name is Adam Jones. That's true. Don't disrespect my last name, you ass. Still no relation. Bradley Cooper was having an awful 2015, and this was just another part of it. And you saying, like, this was written in 2007 makes a lot of sense because, like, the Rockstar Chef came from two things. One, Gordon Ramsay released the miniseries Boiling Point, where you, like, really got to see him and, like, what a three-star Michelin chef is like and how like intense it is and then anthony bourdain released kinship confidential the book about how he talked about his adventure into food and he had like this motley crew that he would like rag on each other and have fun and this main character that burnt is all about adam jones is like you take both these elements of these celebrity chefs but you take away the charisma the scrappiness uh the charm the way they deal with stress I was really having a hard time watching this just because I found Bradley Cooper as this character so detestable in so many ways. Yeah. Um, I'd also, like I said, I'd kind of heard about some of this behind the scenes stuff. Um, I hadn't watched it until we decided to do it for the show. And I think I do agree with Adam that I like the setup because there's literally a point where he talks to Emma Thompson, who's kind of like his therapist somewhat but mostly just the person who checks to make sure that he's on sobriety and hasn't actually taken anything and every like there's a point where he talks to her and he says like you know that movie seven samurai i want to do that but with my kitchen and it's like okay you're pointing out the premise that you established decently already at this point but fine like that premise sounds cool as an idea but the trouble is like scott's talking about the movie focuses so much on him being this kind of like detestable piece of shit character and they kind of forget the whole Seven Samurai thing, because after they're introduced, all the other people that are in his kitchen that are kind of, like, put together don't fucking matter, really, except for Sienna Miller, who plays his eventual love interest. Like, aside from her, everyone else is just like, oh, we're in the background. We're like, yes, chef, and we're going to help you out. That's it. And it feels just kind of like we're throwing away a cool premise for a, a fucking, like, cooking movie. <laughs> It's very frustrating because they tell you so much about, like, he was this great chef, man. He he got involved in all this crazy stuff. He did these things. He sabotaged people. But, man, he's back. He's just trying to do his best. Just, like, and, and as the, the film goes, it's just, like, this dude is such an obnoxious piece of shit. I'm sorry. People say, like, how good he is at cooking. But he is so intolerable in the way that he treats everybody they say like he's broke or whatever, but his restauranting buddy, Daniel Brule just gives him all this money to do whatever. Sienna Miller is like the only person who seems to be cooking. And then like the first time she cooks, he physically grabs her. You glossed over a very important thing with the Daniel Brule character. Yes. He's given him all these things and he's putting him at the hotel and he's putting all this money behind him and everything, blah, blah, blah. Come to reveal that Daniel Brule is in love with him has, you know, homosexual feelings towards him. And then, just to make him even more despicable, Bradley Cooper throws it in his face. And it is so mean-spirited and fucked up. But then he gives him a little kissy kiss. So you're like, oh, he's friends. They love each other. Like, no, dude, this is fucking ridiculous. This is ridiculous. He is the most despicable person. If they would have leaned more into his troubled past or shown him at the bottom of the barrel. Even if they'd had some kind of flashback or anything to show you really the weight of what he's done other than these offhanded stories that just kind of happen. Like, Omar Sy, you put rats in my restaurant. Oh, I did that, my fuck, man. And then, okay, 
you don't care and you're supposed to care really about like the Daniel Brown and uh, Sienna Miller and all that stuff but they're so paper thin characters whereas Daniel Brown's whole character becomes he's you know a spoiled rich guy who has a crush on Bradley Cooper that's his entire character Sienna Miller says I'm a single mom who likes to cook and like, okay like it just nobody has anything other than a basic character outline and i and i find and i am sure both you can agree that in most of these blacklist scripts that tends to be the case where it's always a good idea and it needs another pass or two but it's always just got that title where it was a blacklist script so for the most time they just go with what they got and it, i'd argue more times than often it doesn't work and I think this is a sterling case of that. Well, I mean, I listed a bunch of titles that were on that same blacklist that at least had a lot more interest in the final film. Like they were, they, they at least worked to some degree. As opposed to, I think in this movie, the big problem is just like John Wells is just not that interesting a director. So all of the cool stuff that we're talking about his past, it's all just like told to us. So we find out like, oh, like he was a guy who got into drugs and all this other horrible shit he did in the past. And we get some like vague hints of stuff, but we like all the stuff that we see on the screen. That's like mostly shown to us. It's just him. Like Scott said, being a piece of shit, dude. And it's just like, okay, but I don't see why anyone would be compelled. Why? Like after Cena Miller gets totally like debased by him, she's like courted back and she's like, okay, I guess I'll keep working for him. Okay. I guess I'll fall in love with him. Just like, what? (laughs) What? That's how loose her character is. He, he physically assaults her in front of everybody. Yeah. And But then money brings her back, baby. Because now she's making double her triple wages. And then, oh, he's flawed. I love him. She's a single mom. And part of that's really the reason why she comes in late. And that's why she needs the money. And she says something to the degree of like, yeah, I w- had a kid and I just couldn't like party with him anymore. And he left. So I'll hang out with you, asshole cook who also party too much. Let's focus on a big problem here. So this episode is about food movies. I don't think this movie likes food all that much. First off, one thing that can't be emphasized about this movie enough is that it edits so fast. Like scenes just go by cut, 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 cut. Mm-hmm. Always to show like a sense of montage or time go by or to show you the cooking going on. And you barely get an idea of like what Bradley Cooper cooks. He doesn't have a specialty dish. He doesn't have a style of cooking. He is just like, I cook very expensive food that has all these bits and pieces. And if you're very observant, you see like a steak with a bunch of flowers and a bunch of dotted shit around it and sent out. I don't think there's any scene where someone shows you like, I cook this thing except once. Like the way this movie looks at food is like almost completely inconsequential to him being a chef because it's more focused on that but it's just like totally disconnected from what this whole profession is supposed to be about especially that stupid ass speech he gives where he says like i want to make food that's so good that people stop eating what the fuck is that well because he's a loose cannon he's a renegade chef don't you get it man you just don't get it bro like, what he's good at is not necessarily cooking a specific dish or, like Scott said, like, having anything, like, specific about the passion of cooking food as much as just, like, he's just determined to cook it. Like, there's a whole sequence after he's been accosted by some drug dealers the whole movie, and then at a certain point he gets beaten up, and then they hear, like, oh, the Michelin guys are actually here at the restaurant, and they just, like, oh, I'm battered and bloody, but I must 
get up and cook and it's just like oh i don't care i don't fucking care dude it doesn't seem like you have any fucking passion except just to cook like you're a fucking cooking robot as opposed to a human who likes to cook things that actually would have been a more interesting plot line if they followed where he's just past his prime he cannot keep up with the new trends or anything like that and he even says that you know and they even say oh he does it the old way that she comes in and comes up to the idea and he's all on board for it and blah 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 but then you know everything happens and then he he goes to the guy he used to work with when he's all fucked up and tries to kill himself and the next day the guy's like you're the best of us we need you because you're constantly pushing the envelope what a waste of Matthew Reese. Because mm-hmm. okay, okay. First, first off, let's point out this is inaccurate. He keeps giving him shit because like he has a chef that's kind of like a like like a science lab, which is not that out of realism for some like three star restaurants. But he's also like, yeah, you cook shit in condoms. You do the sous vide shit. It's like, dude, if you were cooking in Paris five years ago. Sous vide has been something they've been doing for decades. So don't you dare act like your version of cooking is all that like incredible or extraordinary, especially when the movie won't show us what the hell it is. This film has many opportunities where you could like see what they're going on, but either it doesn't give you enough development or it just gives you a very shallow idea. Like I like that there's a scene where the daughter of Sienna Miller is at the restaurant and he's like, one of the guests wants a cake. I don't make cakes. You made her come in here during the birthday. You make her a fucking cake. And it was like Daniel Brule having a bit of a spine. I'm like, oh, that's nice. And he makes her a cake. I don't know what the kind of cake it is. And she eats the cake and kind of like sasses back at him. But they don't develop anything more with the daughter and Bradley Cooper. Right. Though, to be fair, there was kind of a point where I'm just like, Man, if he just did a thing where after she's like, I've had better. He just like slammed the cake. Like, how fucking dare you? I might like give this movie five stars if that happened. I would have laughed. That would have been better. (laughs) Instead of Santa Miller kind of peeking out of the kitchen and going, maybe he could be a good dad. Right. Yeah. That's literally the whole idea of that. You're like, get the fuck out of here with this. (laughs) And then his therapist, who's testing him for drugs and alcohol, finds him sitting on her steps still in a bloody t-shirt with a wound above his eye and she's like yeah come on in everything's cool well because it's emma thompson so it's just like oh i'm delightful and british i'm gonna put the kettle on she literally is gonna put the fucking kettle on <laughs> but he kisses daniel Brule, so all is forgiven it's weird how we have never talked about a bradley cooper movie on the show before i find him so fascinating as a star presence he feels like an old school movie star but for a new generation that fast in a way that fascinates me and i like the trajectory of his career and it's so weird that you put him in this particular role where, in theory, like, okay, a kind of rough-around-the-edges dude who still has, like, a passion, in this case, for cooking, that could be a perfect role for Bradley Cooper. And when you put him in this particular part, there you don't get much insight into him. I think the only time you get a bit of insight, I think the best scene of this whole movie, is when Alicia Vikander is introduced as his ex at that party. And she just quickly puts off a thing about, like, I was pretty bad when you last saw me, but I've quit addiction, and then she pulls out a cigarette instant great way of showing off the fact like she's progressed somewhat but she still has a vice that she has there and then she's like um my dad wanted me to send over the knives do you want those yes i want those knives that's a really good scene i agree but they they sort of downplay because in the next very next scene he's sitting at that you know fish market all night because his vice is cooking you're like oh for fuck's sake well, because he gave everything else up, Adam, including women. That's one of the vices he gave up. Isn't that so daring? Oh, <laughs> oh sure. You gave up yeah. women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for 
And, and and like here's the thing with Bradley Cooper. Like Bradley Cooper played a chef before. There is a Kitchen Confidential series Fox made. It's actually like really fun. But part of the joy of that show is that he's one part of a very fun ensemble. And it kind of disappoints me because I think this this film has a pretty good supporting cast. I actually really like Sienna Miller. I like that Omar Sy oh, helps it helps him a lot until he betrays him. And when that happened, I was like, good. This had to be like such a weird passion project for Cooper to some degree, because he was like, I want to make this story. It's like this blacklist thing has to be made. And it's like, I don't exactly know what he was going for here. Like the Omar Sy thing. Like I could see a world where that is such a huge, massive like plot twist in a world where, I don't know, we got to know Omar Sy beyond, like Adam mentioned. Yes. He, like, they, they're introduced to him really just like, you put rats in my kitchen. Oh, that was a bummer, bro. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll cook with you. And then you got to see them cook together beyond him just saying, like, yes, chef. Like, they actually grew a bit more of a bond. It's like, oh, maybe they're rekindling. And then it really hurts when Omar Sy is just like, hey, I put all that shit on it right before it left. Go fuck yourself. And then leaves. That would be, like, a devastating moment. And in practice, it's just like, oh, okay, good. Fuck that guy. Go, Omar Sy. You're the hero <laughs> of the movie now. Yeah, because ultimately Omar Sy becomes just a background character in this fucking kitchen for an hour. Like, for, And then with the ultimate, yeah, I put Cayenne in. This is for Barris. Fuck you. And good. Yeah, I agree. Fuck him. I, just the idea that they check it out even on that. He should have not got the three stars in that. Should have been like, fuck you. You were a piece of shit. This is your punishment now. No, that really wasn't the Michelin people. They're here now. It's very frustrating that the movie wants you to like him because it's like every person he interacts with is someone he abuses directly or someone he abuses like he like imprints on them because it's like one of his buddies was like got into jail because he physically assaulted another guy because he plated food wrong. Uh, There's like this really young kid. He's like, hey, you know me? You like me? Will you work for my kitchen? Will you pay me to work at my kitchen, you asshole? You be an asshole. That's the that's the lesson I'm gonna teach you. It's like, oh god, this this guy is such the worst. And when when he had like his downfall, I was probably enjoying it the most then because I think the movie like slowed down a bit, which it really needed to do. Though, okay, that that scene where Bradley Cooper tries to commit suicide in front of Matthew Reese, I felt embarrassed and just like, no, don't don't do that. You you look really silly right now. Do you know that? Where where it's like, instead of you feeling sorry for the character for being like, oh, you've gone off the wagon, you feel like the movie's gone off the wagon, you're like, movie, you need to like sober up. This is not, this is upsetting (laughs) to see what you've gone to. You feel more sorry for the Reese character because he's like, dude, this guy's doing this shit in my school slash restaurant. Fuck me. I get it's trying to be this redemption story or blah, 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 because it clearly isn't about cooking. I mean, we, we've established that. It isn't. It sh- should be. It's not. But it's supposed to be a redemption story for this asshole character who his biggest redemption, he throws his book that he marked down a million in into a river. That's it. The rest of it is just, okay. Like, it, there's nothing in this that makes you legitimately give a shit about anything that happened. Do more with these people. You have this incredible arsenal of character actors and really good European actors, but you just let Bradley Cooper be a dick. And the thing is, yes, I agree. The director is not right for this, but it also does start at script level a hundred percent with this. If you want this to be a redemption story, then where's the redemption for anyone? If you want this to be a sort of accepting your place in nowadays times in whatever profession you choose, 
where is that? Because he just easily adapts everything and everything works out for him. With, with like the script level thing, this feels so much like a, a script and a production that feels mangled a lot of the time. Like Scott kind of mentioned the over-editing and some of this other stuff. Like I am so convinced that the script that David Fincher wanted to make was not something that resembled whatever the fuck this was. This feels like a cool I'm idea sure. that got really overdeveloped in a way that just like it, it doesn't work because there's seeds of interesting things in here. Like even you mentioned like the whole Michelin thing where it's like they initially it's like, oh, it looks like he completely got screwed over by Omar side and can't do anything. And then it's like, oh, it turns out the Michelin guys are actually coming in this night. The other people weren't the Michelin people. This is your chance at actual redemption thing, even though it's like the redemptive thing would be for him to be like, well, I can't have that thing I always wanted, but maybe I can discover my passion for cooking again instead of being a celebrity chef. I don't know. That seems like a very basic thing. But at least that feels like some kind of progression for a story. <laughs> or if you wanted to make it like, I don't know, the whiplash of cooking. Because there's definitely guys who take, like, the intensity of it way too seriously. And they have horrible, like, burnout. Or their lives are, like, not the same as they were. Or they die early. That would fit. But this movie doesn't really want to commit to that narrative. Instead, it wants to have its cake and eat it, too. When he found out that that wasn't the real Michelin people and he's all fucked up still and he just had this huge crisis, he fell off the wagon and blah, blah, blah. To me, the thing that would have worked is hand the kitchen over to Sienna Miller then and let her do it. Let he His time has passed at this point already. Give it to her. She's more than capable. But no, it's got to be him. He's got to be the hero. He has to fucking succeed and win in the end. And it's completely unearned. 100%. And also, just a shout out to, we mentioned this ensemble cast kind of being wasted. Two people we haven't even mentioned because they have like one scene each in this movie. One, early on, Lily James is like the the love interest of the one guy who's kind of like the, the younger guy that, as Scott mentioned, was like being told to be an asshole. Yeah, David. Right, the David character. And she's basically the one who gets exposited about like what a Michelin is and how good he is, which is like, he's like, um, if you get three stars, that means you're Yoda. He's got two stars. He's like Obi-Wan Kenobi or whoever Alec Guinness played. That's that's so great. And then two, fucking Uma Thurman as a food critic. Who, right, who early on, like, it just, she was like, he comes up to her, it's just like, ah, look, Uma Thurman, I meet you again. She's like, oh, I can't believe it. You're the biggest mistake of my life. I'm a lesbian, yet I slept with you, Bradley Cooper, because you're the hottest man around. Even a lesbian has to sleep with you. Just like, what is this bullshit? What does that have to do with anything? And not only that, but she's used as a tool both to, like, help out Bradley Cooper and also, like, hurt other people. Like, Man, she had like one bite of food that we didn't even get to see. And oh my God, he's the best chef ever. It's like, movie, you do not know anything about this industry other than what people might have told you. Just go home, movie, you're drunk. Which is crazy because it did have Gordon Ramsay as an executive producer. But the movie's bullshit. Right? Like, it's, it's a bullshit film. There is a lot of potential here. This could have been something really cool and really great. And I think ultimately that's what makes it so frustrating for me because I would have loved to have seen a David Fincher version of this or even with Bradley Cooper under David Fincher or Keanu Reeves under David Fincher because Bradley Cooper definitely has the chops and we all know David Fincher does. And I do think there is a really cool idea here. It's just sort of done with messy kids' gloves and they don't know what they're making. The whole movie, they don't know what they're making. Be it, we don't know what they're making as chefs in the kitchen, but I think 
that everybody involved just kind of okay we'll go with it we'll make it edgy so you know it, it people will like it i mean those sound like pretty good final thoughts adam unless you have anything else to add five out of five <laughs> the movie no. gets a three Michelin stars. Five out of five out of five aneurysms. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible movie. I prefer the Michelin Man tire thing to this fucking. <laughs> the tire brand also rates restaurants. Crazy. Well, what about uh, Scott? What about your final thoughts on Burn? There's a scene in this movie by the end that I think really explains what is so wrong about this. Like, there's a moment where Bradley Cooper says, "I will finally." do what I can to earn the respect that I should have had. And everyone already loved him. Everyone already wanted to fuck him. Everyone seemed to forgive everything about his drugs and horrible attitude because he was just that good of a chef. And that's why as like a redemption story, a character study, or whatever you want to be, Burnt absolutely fails. It takes the worst elements about this industry that's very interesting and is going through a lot of like discussion and like metamorphosis even during the current times and it just like wants to flatten it and just highlight on the worst aspects to think that it makes the most interesting storytelling but it doesn't you end up with this very hollow kind of soulless film that doesn't even seem to have a lot of respect for the people who create food or food itself. Please do not see it for the bad taste it will put in your mouth. That burnt taste. Oh, so terrible. It feels like a Frankenstein of a movie. I've talked about that on the show before where it's just like this movie feels like it went through so many different like revisions and drafts to the point where you could see a good idea in here, but it just doesn't work in execution. And especially like I, I mentioned that John Walls, I think, is a bad job of directing. Like Scott had said the whole thing about like, oh, um, there's a whole issue where like, oh, you go into his uh, Matthew Reese's test uh, lab kitchen and it doesn't feel like he has any of that authenticity. Yet anytime we're in Bradley Cooper's kitchen, it looks exactly the fucking same with a different coat of paint. That's just the weird thing where this movie wants to say, like, oh, no, Bradley Cooper's more authentic, but this movie looks like a fucking stylish perfume ad. Like, that's all it looks like the whole time. It's consistent, kind of, like, there's a sleekness, but, like, that's it. And there's no, like, individuality in any of the settings or how John Wells shoots any of it, and the cast is really wasted on it. It just feels like it's such a terrible mess that I would definitely agree that, like, don't bother seeing it. Do not bother being burnt by burnt. But uh, before we get into our next film, here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Hey, Joe. Hey, Tony. Do you like ads about podcasts? You know it. How about ads about Doctor Who podcasts? Even better. Well, you're in luck because this is an ad about a Doctor Who podcast. Wow, I love it. And you'll love us, The Watchathon of Rassilon, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'll buy 12. Actually, it's free. I'll buy 13 then. And now let's get into our uh, second feature, Julie and Julia. I'm Julia Child. Bon appétit. Before she changed the world, Julia Child was just an American living in France. Shouldn't I find something to do? What is it that you really like to do? Eat. And we are so good I at it. Look at you. Now, They're growing in are. front of you. But what does Julia Child have to do with me? Lowly cubicle worker Julie Powell. Bonjour! The Julie slash Julia Project. I cook my way through Julia Child's cookbook. 365 days, 524 recipes. I am risking my well-being for a deranged assignment. Is it crazy? 
Yes. From writer-director Nora Ephron. <laughs> good. That is good, isn't it? It's Meryl Streep, Amy Adams. I was drowning and she pulled me out of the ocean. Don't get carried away. What's for dinner? What's for dinner? Mm. Oh, my. Julie and Julia, based on two true stories. So uh, Julie and Julia came out August 7th, 2009 from director-writer Nora Ephron, who had previously written a lot of like of the famous rom-coms of the 90s. Uh, this was her last film as a director-writer before she passed away. Uh, it's based on two true stories, as they say in the opening titles. There's a Julie and Julia halves of this, where Julia is obviously Julia Child, we referenced her earlier, and it's based on her sort of becoming a chef um, while she is with her husband in France, in post-World War II France. And uh, she becomes one of the few, like, women who cooks in this, like, big advanced cooking class. And she ends up uh, deciding to write a cookbook with a couple of French people. But at the same time, uh, it's a parallel story between that and in 2002, we follow uh, Julie Powell. Um, and she is this woman who, who works at this, like, conference call job and is kind of, like, just wanting to get some kind of thing out of life. She feels just kind of, like, in a rut. So she decides to start a blog back in 2002 when that was kind of a new thing. And uh, she decides to cook every single recipe in Julia Child's uh, Joy of Cooking book. It's 524 recipes in a 365-day span. She knows it's a pretty tough challenge, and it's about her kind of struggling to do that while we come between her story and Julia Child's story. And this was my pick. And uh, Julie and Julie was a movie that I remember seeing around the time it came out, not in theaters, but when it was on, like, uh, video rental and stuff like that. And I remember kind of liking it at the time. And every time I've gone back to it, um, I kind of grow to love it more and more. I think this is such a supremely good, not just food movie, but also a really good movie about the issue people kind of come into when they want to do something creative, whether it is Julia Child or even Julie in terms of cooking. Just that struggle of like, I want to keep at, at a pace, but I don't want to like lose track of my life. And I want to keep the people in my life around and actually be attentive to them. But also I want to do this thing that I feel passionate about. And even about new media, I think it's a really incredibly like insightful movie, especially even for like 2009, looking back on 2002. I think there's a lot of stuff to this movie that makes it, I think, a movie that a lot of people dismissed at the time. Said, oh, I'm like Meryl Streep's good as Julia Child. But um, I think is much better than I think some people give it credit for. But Scott, you're the big cooking guy. Uh, what do you think of Julie and Julia? Is it one of the better cooking movies out there? Similar to you, I also think I watched it around the time it came out, probably on uh, streaming or, or DVD. And this was when I was really starting to get into cooking as like a passion and a hobby and like trying to learn as much as I could. I had known a bit about Julia Child and watching it just seemed like, oh, this sounds like a slam dunk. And I, I liked it. I thought it was pretty fun. And I just kind of like pushed it to the side. Considering there's so many great movies about food, I don't know if this is in the top. However, like you said, when I rewatched it for this podcast, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. I thought this movie was just incredibly delightful. It is so like, what's the French term of like, it has that just joy of life aspect to it. And so much more like nuance and themes to it that I was not expecting that make me love it. Well, and Adam, you hadn't seen it at all before I tasked you to watch it for this show. As, no, I ain't seen this shit. It, like, I'm not calling it shit now, but this is definitely a movie, like, this was not even on my radar. Like, I, I remember it coming out, but I, I, I didn't care. I, you know, I was so tired of biopics, and I still am tired of biopics and all that. And, and, and this really isn't that. It is, but it isn't. I, I mean, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I, I don't think I'm as 
favorable on it as either of you, but I'm probably right up there. I was definitely more on board the uh, Meryl Streep, Stanley Tucci stuff than I was the Amy Adams, Chris Messina stuff. I think this movie all but confirmed to me. For some reason, I've just never been a big fan of Amy Adams. Like, I know she's talented, and I get it. Just I, I just, eh, I, okay. But I will say the actual julia child and you know her husband and her sister and all that stuff and her going to the school and you know i found it incredibly fun and sweet and just shot really well looked period authentic um i just i found that part absolutely delightful i think i had a similar thing where like i liked the movie at the time when i initially saw it but i i think a lot of people even had this opinion at the time of like oh the julie stuff isn't nearly as interesting as the julia stuff but I think that's why when I've gone back to this more and more, I think I've liked the Julie stuff, maybe not in as much as like, oh, I think they're on equal level. I think the movie's really pointing out the fact that she's a woman who is constantly in the shadow of like, not just uh, the people in her life, like the scene where she go- goes over to her friends and has like the lunch and she instantly is just like, oh yeah, I don't have as interesting a life. I'm, I'm just kind of like in a rut and everyone else is like going beyond me. I'm reaching 30 and I don't know what to do with my life. So I'm going to start this blog thing. I think it's a really good encapsulation of just kind of like, as I've uh, sort of progressed in, you know, I'm doing this stupid podcast that's not nearly as successful as Julie Powell's blog, but I had that sort of similar thing, which is like, I mean, I know the struggle of like trying to put yourself out there with a creative art form on the internet, and initially, no one gives a shit. And you eventually find an audience, but you're still in that worried state of like, oh, how am I going to like stand out? How am I going to do something different that really speaks to people to some degree? And I like how, especially with the Julie stuff, like it's so much of like her getting obsessed with the idea of doing this and how that weighs on people around her where they're like, oh, you're doing a great job of cooking food. Yeah. Did you know this thing about uh, Julia Child that she had this specific thing and this? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so I really like the food. And by the way, do you like, yeah, but what about this Julia Child thing that you didn't know about? Just like... Uh, when you get like so into a project and you become so knowledgeable about this stuff and you want to express it to people, you sometimes don't consider the fact that it's just like, oh, you, they don't find this nearly as interesting as you do. And particularly where Christmasina is so supportive and so enjoyable as like the husband character. But when he reaches that point, just like, oh my God, I'm so regret telling you about this fucking blog thing. <laughs> I don't, like it, it weighs on him in a believable way. It's a great movie about sort of like the relationships that you build with people and how you realize like, oh, your own creative projects can weigh on people when you don't consider their needs at the same time. I think it does such a great job of contrasting that with the Julie Child stuff to me. I don't know. Was that maybe an issue with you about the Julie stuff, Scott, compared to the Julia Child stuff? That wasn't really so much of an issue for me watching it this time around, where you are right at the time I felt the same as everyone else, where it's like, eh, Julie's just not that interesting, it's fine, it's all about Meryl and how great that performance is and how interesting that life is, and I think you can't help but notice it just because, like, Julie Child and her life and just her being is such this over-the-top, amazing, fascinating thing, where she, like lived in Paris, her her and her husband were spies. They she learns from like the Cordon Blue how to be a chef and has this takes on this great project. Versus Amy Adams is just a woman trying to live in like post 9-11 New York. Like she has to balance her job, balance her love life, balance moving into this new place and now taking on this passion project, which she doesn't know if it's gonna pay off, but it just becomes a more interesting thing where I could kind of like 
empathize with her a lot more and really see what she was going through. Like, I think this movie works better in 2021, especially because we know so much about like trying to balance your work and your hobby at the same time. And then when your hobby then becomes your new work or like when you have the opportunity to try and balance versus, you know, Julia Child, all respect to her, but she, you know, she had this money. She had all this time. She had a decade to work on her book with partners versus Julie, who had one year to work on all these things at once. And I, really came to appreciate how Amy Adams emphasizes all this. This actually really made me really like Amy Adams again because I feel like she had been she's been taking a lot of roles that are not very good and also they're too big. Her playing Julie is a much more subdued role that I think she's really good at where she can just really let her acting speak out and as you watch this character change over time and get more obsessed but also learn the lessons of like everything that's going on in her life. But didn't you see so much of that nuance in her role as Lois Lane in those DC movies, Scott? And how much they use her so well in those movies, right? Isn't she so great in those movies? <laughs> but I mean, I also will say, like, I totally get it with the Julia Child stuff because it's all so, like, enjoyable. And it's, I think it's one of my favorite Meryl performances because she's giving, like, such nuance to a person who, like, I knew Julia Child was like, oh, she's the lady who, like, cooked, and Dan Aykroyd did that impression of her on SNL, like, shit like that. But she gives her, like, so much nuance, and it's also a credit to her and Tucci in this movie are like, this is couple goals. Like, they are such a good oh, husband and wife team <laughs> together. Oh, God, man. It's... Oh, fuck. My first introduction to Julia Childs, believe it or not, is in the film Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Because the fucking brother used to watch her cooking shows all the time. So that's how I figured out who she was. Now, you know, to, to, to speak on the movie a little bit more. Yeah, I, dude, Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci are just fucking perfect together in this movie. It's great. The love that they have for each other just radiates off the screen. It's adorable. It's sweet. It's it just, I absolutely love it. And I think that might be my problem with the flip side. I never once felt that connection between Amy Adams and Chris Messina in this movie. Not once. Um, to the point where they have their big, you know, blowout because the dinner doesn't happen because of the rain or whatever and he just fucking packs off and leaves for like a week and you're like i get it like i get what he's saying he's tired of you know living like this and oh my god i wish i'd have never came up with this idea and blah 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 blah. but like you might get little inklings that he's getting tired of it throughout the movie but it's just like this huge thing all at once and then he's gone and it just it didn't work for me at all. I totally disagree with that because I think the whole movie like is him being not necessarily like being as like interesting as the Stanley Tucci character. I agree, but he's a really supportive husband who cares about like ha her actually having this thing initially. It's just like, look, you you deserve to have this like hobby that you actually gives you a bit more fulfillment than your job. I want to support that. I want to help you with that. Like the whole lobster scene, I think does a great job of expressing that. Like, oh, they do have a connection with each other. It's different than the Stanley Tucci and Julia Child stuff, but it still is like there is a real love that there and that frustration ends up happening i think it's just the difference between two uh different time periods of these two couples where both of them are working they both have completely different situation than the other two that's not really what i'm saying i guess what i'm saying is i never even felt the chemistry between the two either i could see the chemistry between them but it's not as like again paul and julia child are like explosively loving they it's like there's like no flaws in their relationship almost and they're they're always hanging out and tucci is delivering it like that bit where he walks into julia child and she's just cut all those onions it's like i can't come in here it's it's really fun but 
Chris Messina is a lot more like passive in the way that he helps out Julie. I also think when you look at the Julie segments, it's not as much about their relationship as it is about Julie learning to love to write again or learning to cook or learning to take this passion and really drive it and escalate it to this big thing. That's where I could see like the, why the, Ju the Julie Child and Julie Powell mirror comes from. It's more that idea of taking on a project and it ends up growing so big just the way that you get involved with it, where Julie Julia really only has problems when she comes around to publishing this and trying to find a, a publisher to make the book because the book is so long. Meanwhile, Julie's got to like juggle her relationship and she's like cooking too much and she's stressing and she's, and she's failing. And you see her like have meltdowns because something went wrong and she's building herself up so much because she loves Julia Child so much, but it's just, it's almost dragging her down a bit because she's just getting too obsessed. Right. Down to the fact where she is like, so she's so obsessed with like Julia Child is like sort of a figure that she kind of almost puts on this like godlike presence. And that scene where she finds out from the one editor about just like, hey, I spoke with Julia Child. She thinks your blog's bullshit. She thinks it's like a <laughs> dumb thing that you, she doesn't fucking like. And she is devastated by this. And then Chris Messina is the guy who just helps him like, look, that it's a shame that like, I guess this Julia Child doesn't understand what you do. But it's more important that you have that version of Julia that like gave you this passion to do this project. And that's what's more important to you. And I really hope you can like keep that alive because I like that you have that passion. Even if we had that conflict before. Let's let's also like look at the relationship this movie has with food and cooking as a passion. Like compared to Burnt, which just looks at this as like you execute it and you're perfect. This is so much more about like enjoying what it feels to experience food and cook food and loving how to share it and make it with other people and just taste the food and love it. I think I, I read that Nora Ephron insisted that people eat on camera, which is not something actors like to do because you just have to eat a ton. Mm -hmm. And you could so feel how good the food is in this movie and how much they all care about what these two real-life people were, were trying to do. The chemistry between the people and the food and the <laughs> idea that the food is sort of really establishes sort of these passions and loves and things like that. I totally get that. And yeah, that is a hundred percent on screen, a thousand percent. And yeah, that's, that's literally the reason why I really like it. Yes. The Julie, the Meryl Streep's Tucci stuff. Absolutely. But the core of the movie is the cooking. It really truly is. And finding your passion for food and, you know, Julia did it because she was bored and needed something to do and she found it and really found her passion. I mean, we see her trying to be a seamstress and take her sewing hats and then taking bridge classes and then taking a, you know, a remedial cooking class and it just doesn't do it for her. But then she finds her passion in this advanced class and the same with the Amy Adams character. It's established early on that, you know, she wrote a novel and didn't finish it and she's, you know, you basically get the idea, you know, through her phone conversations with her mother and things like that and her friends that you know, she was voted to go to the top to succeed, but she's never found her passion. So for this, she has to set her own deadline to make sure she completes it. And she does, and she finds the love of it. I a thousand percent agree with all of that. So you guys can eat a butt. I love pork butt. I will certainly eat butt. It, it also shows, like, Adam expressed this earlier, and I agree that, like, I think this movie does such a great job of expressing the idea of, like, how food brings people together, like, an actual conversation. Like, this, this thing where it's just, like, when you are sitting down to a food that someone either prepare for you or just even at like a great restaurant you can have this like great connection where other things spurred out of it like i love the scene so much where it's meryl streep uh, stanley tucci and jane lynch as her sister which is such perfect casting 
Of course that makes sense for, like, tall-ass Jane Lynch to be making you even further believe the Meryl Streep, like, tall thing, which credit also just how much of the forced perspective stuff they, to make her look like she's 6'2", Julia Child. Stellar. But that's just, like, another example where, like, they're having that conversation about, oh, yeah, we, you know, we never got anybody um, in Pasadena. Why? Too tall! And then they, like, just laugh at each other. Like, that kind of stuff, like, really shows, like, oh, yeah, food is this thing that can really bring people together in this way. And even with, like, the uh, the flip side with, uh, Christmas scene and Amy Adams like Christmas scene to give such good like oh this is great food face like every time he bites into something it's just like oh fuck it's so good <laughs> this is so immediately great and you see that passion and it's shared between that, that couple at the same time it's also shared in any of the scenes where like Julie Child's preparing something for somebody it shows that even these two people who are in such different perspectives and different time periods ha- can find like that same connection with people through making food for them or eating food with other people I also think there's that sense of relatability when it comes to Julie's part more than Julia like not, nothing against Julia but it, it's part of also why I came to love this film more on the second watch just because of how much the way we look at food as social media has developed or how we talk about food has changed like when she's like had a shitty day at work made a good meal and that tastes good that's relatable or it's like i made this food it fell on the floor and i feel miserable that's relatable (laughs) a lot i think a lot of that really kind of works and I think you could do a movie just about Julia Child's life. You probably couldn't do it just about the Julie Powell story. But because of the way that biopics tend to be framed, I think it would be hard to talk about all that stuff Julia Child was going through in a movie and keep it contained. And that's why I like this dual perspective that Efren is pulling off here, looking at both of these characters' lives and the inspiration you get and how food brought them together, and that was their impact on the world. I think that really makes it a more unique and enjoyable kind of film experience, especially compared to a whole lot of other uh, food movies. One of my favorite plot devices of the film, though, if I'm getting to the, the sort of Julie side of it, I do like that the way they bookended her birthday to where on her first birthday, she makes a meal that she's so scared of doing with the lobster. And then they bookend it with the deboning of the duck. That was a really smart thematic choice to where she's diving, you know, literally head first uh, with the first meal. And then the last one is sort of the, the albatross meal to where she was so scared of it the whole time she does it. And it's an ultimate success. I thought that was a very uh, smart way to tell that story cinematically. I really do. That's the thing. It's just certain parts of it. I don't think connected with me the way it does with you guys. But again, you guys have revisited this. I have not. This is going in the first time. And, you know, I'm having a lot of those problems that you guys might have had your first time and other people might have had. Now, if I rewatch this again in, you know, a, a year or two, I, I might be more favorable on some of it. It's just going in first viewing. The It's hard to deny the spectacle that was the Meryl Streep, Stanley Tucci era. I mean, it, it just that part sucked you in that got all my attention. Now, if I go back already knowing that, that I might appreciate the second part more, you know, the, the split half, but that, you know, ultimately that's the powerhouse performance. That's the, you know, the grandiose thing that we all, we know who Julia Child is. We all know this. And that's the part that ultimately hooked me. Right. And at the same time, even with like, I agree that like the Julia Child stuff has this kind of spectacle and glorious look to it. It's so well shot. And like we said, like the period detail, this movie deserved more Oscar nominations than just Meryl. I think like production design and costume design, even Tucci. Yeah. A thousand percent. Especially when this was the year that he was nominated for Lovely Bones, 
as opposed to this oh, fucking fuck. movie is where you should have been nominated for because it's so good. Oh. Like, particularly that great scene where um, there's a whole recurring thing where Julia Child can't get pregnant. And I love the way they portray that, where, like, she'll see a baby and, like, get a bit teary-eyed. But then especially the scene where she finds out that uh, Jane Lynch is pregnant. And she tries to disguise this, her crying is like, oh, I'm just so happy. And Tucci, like, hugs her. That's such a great, subtle bit of just, like, nope, that's everything about, like, why these two are so great together. They are so supportive of each other, even, like, really times where they're, like, emotionally down. It's a beautiful bit of acting from both of them. Yeah, I really came to appreciate more of the side aspects other than just Meryl's performance as Julia Child, which is spectacular. Like, of course it was nominated because this is one, this is one of those times that Meryl got nominated and you're like, yes, yes, that was very much earned. But I also compared it to Burnt, which is so stylish and flashed in the pan in its look. And I just appreciate the look of this movie. Just like, it's a bit more like Technicolor and toned up when you see Julia Child stuff. But then when you go back to Julie and how it's that, you know, base level New York and she's making food that clearly like came from a small pack kitchen, it makes it all the more effective. And like Alexander Desplat is doing the score and he's making it very fancy and flighty and that fits very well for the movie. That's why like, I, I can't emphasize enough that's like, if you had doubts about this movie, I highly recommend rewatching it. I think when one thing that went down when I rewatched is just that Julia Child has a lot going on because we're covering like a decade's worth of work. So it's like when they introduce her sister, oh, now she's married. Oh, now she's having a kid. And oh, now they're now she's like moving to like Germany and then Oslo and then I guess she's back in France. A lot of that stuff just really moved fast in the in the last third. But at the same time, it's kind of like what you said earlier, where, like, if they had done the traditional biopic of Julia Child, the moment where they kind of stop, where it's like, oh, your book's getting published, would be, like, the third act that drags on, and it's just like, and then she died, as opposed to they have the other Julie stuff to kind of, like, pad that out, so it doesn't become a traditional biopic, and I didn't mind necessarily that kind of movie, because it sort of shows that, like, while Julie is working on this cooking book, um, her whole life is kind of, like, flashing by, like, other people are, like, doing other things, and she's, like, still stuck on this cooking book, to where it sells the exhaustion of just like, can we even fucking do this? Why did we bother? This is so difficult to get this fucking published. So it makes them on the porch just enjoy about like, oh my god, we've sold the book. Feel so good. That's such a great fucking moment. And it's just, just two people on a fucking porch. And it means so much more than if it's just like, there's Julia Child making the cooking shows or whatever other bullshit that would have tried to fill out a third act. Oh, well, especially to like just the way that Julie sends it off. It's just like, even though she knows she doesn't like her or the book it's like well her impact still made a lot to like this great decision she made and then when they see the replication of her kitchen and she's just she's just like i love you julia it, it it's beautiful it's it's really beautiful so i have to ask what was the best looking food for you all in the movie hmm. oh god yeah man i'll take that beef stew any day man <laughs> i'll take that shit the bull fucking yawn yeah i'll take that Right now, that looked fucking great. That would be mine. I love a good hearty stew, and that that is exactly that. Especially with the little basil leaf on top and a little bit of red wine. Like, yeah, baby. So that's that's pretty great. I think when she does the 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 dish at the end, where it's like even even with my level of expertise, doing something like that duck that's deboned and stuffed in pastry, it's like that's intimidating. So when she pulls that off, I was like. 
man, that would be fantastic. Though the beef bourguignon looks beautiful. And when she makes the chicken with the port and cream and mushrooms, like that's a nice weekly meal. There's so much food here that it's it's really hard to pick. I mean, I would say even especially for like I'm not a huge fan of raspberry in general, but that fucking raspberry Bavarian cream that she makes looks so delicious. It's that weird thing where like it almost looks like the food that you see in advertisements where it's like, oh, this is probably bullshit and it's not actually how it's gonna look when most people make it. But the way that it looks immediately is just like, oh fuck, I'd like to eat that shit. It looks so good. <laughs> but that's like all the food in this movie that was shot so well. To where it, it's like cinematic in the way of just like, oh, it's on a big screen. It's just like, I almost want to eat my TV just so I could get that taste. Uh, but we've talked quite a bit about Julie and Julius. So let's go into final thoughts on it here. Adam, your final thoughts on Julie and Julia. I think it's a, it's a very sweet movie. There's a lot of very great performances in it. The food all looks great. Stanley Tucci and Meryl Streep, yes, they are definitely like married couple goals. It is a very nice little surprise of a movie for me. And I think that for someone like me who generally would stay away from something like this when it came out, I, you know, it was a nice little surprise. And I think for people who might have been the same way, uh, you could definitely do a lot worse. You, you might have a really good time with this. It's a super fun little sweet movie. And I, I will say even for its runtime, which is over like a little bit over two hours, it doesn't feel like it. It, it goes by in a breeze. And in comparison to our first movie, which fucking drags, this one does fly by. I, I, I genuinely did enjoy it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would recommend it to, into the idea of a biopic or a food movie or a great Meryl Streep performance or even uh, something that's half of a period piece, which nails it dead ass on. Um, I, you know, you could do a lot worse. I, I think it's definitely uh, one that... Uh, I think you could have a good time with just throwing it on and seeing what it's about. Scott, your final thoughts on Julie and Julia. Uh, interesting story. So when I was watching this, I asked my mom to join because if she had seen it before. And as we were watching that movie, Julie was poaching eggs. And my mom just got this brainstorm of like, I made this recipe one time that had poached eggs and potatoes and, and bacon and all this stuff. I'm going to try to find that recipe. And she spent an hour looking through old cookbooks trying to refine that recipe because it just came as a flash as she she was watching it and i think that is a testament to what this movie says about food and passion and everything that both of these real life people wanted to do it is an effortlessly charming film that has a whole lot more to say about like work and being inspired and passion and just making something you want to not just for yourself but for other people um, it has that real, the term I was trying to find was uh, joy de vivre, and it'll certainly give you a lot to do. Yes, uh, Julia Child from Beyond the Grave, finishing Scott's thoughts there. You know, Stanley Tucci and Julia Child in the same episode? Such a star-studded cast. But but yeah, I mean, I agree with what everyone said here. I think this is like the complete contrast of Burnt, where we didn't feel any passion that's going on here. This is a movie full of passion, whether it be from like the Julia perspective or the Julie perspective. There's a true passion, just like, I want to accomplish this thing, whether it's writing this cookbook, the first French cookbook written in English, or on the opposite side of things, Julie trying to take that cookbook and prove that she can make all these recipes within the span of a year and try and advance, like, oh, having, like, her writerly voice actually come out in some way. And I think it has such a great cast, not just Streep and Stanley Tucci, who are so phenomenal, but also I would say Adams and Messina are so great. And everyone else, even, we even talk about her. I love Mary Lynn Reichcomb. In this movie, she steals scenes as, like, fucking Julie's friend, who's just like, am I a bitch? Yes. 
but aren't we all bitches to some degree? <laughs> like, she's so fucking funny in this movie. And so it's like there's a lot of other great people in here. It makes it like a movie that could have been just dismissed in a way of just like, oh, it's one of many movies Meryl Streep got nominated for an Oscar for for just kind of showing up. But in this case, she really does play a completely different character. And it's also such a great film from Nora Ephron, who I think is kind of someone who also gets undervalued because like, oh yeah, she wrote like Sleeps in Seattle and When Harry Met Sally. But she is such an interesting, distinctive voice who made so many, like, very curious movies. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. And I think this is my favorite of hers that she especially directed, just because it d- says so much about not just cooking, but also about, like, kind of struggling to find your voice in the new media landscape versus trying to do so when you were a woman in the 50s and doing, like, so much there that I think it, it has so much more than just the Julia Child movie. It's a lot more than that. And I think it's, uh, it's definitely one that, as everyone mentioned, definitely seek it out if you missed out on it. But now, it's time for our weekly segment, The Double Redo, where every week, Adam, myself, and a guest recommends and doesn't recommend uh, two movies each related to the topic that we're talking about. So each of us have four movies, two good ones, two bad ones, to either recommend or not to you related to food movies. And Adam, go ahead and go first with what are the two you like and the two you don't like. All right. So uh, for my two I do like, I have an actual documentary as one of them. Uh, which I, I tend to not do because, you know, everybody takes documentaries in a different way. But I actually got to see this one at a uh, museum when it came out, in, I think 2011. And it's uh, Euro Dreams of Sushi. And it's this movie about this, I, I want to say he's in his mid to late 80s sushi chef in Tokyo who has this little basement restaurant. I think it only seats 10 people, if I remember correctly. And uh, he's wanting to retire, but he still wants to create the sort of perfect sushi, which his thing is quick and eaten quick and uh he's you know world renowned and he wants to pass it on to his son who's now in his mid 50s and the whole thing is his son might not want to do this still but in japanese culture that's sort of the way it goes like he he would take up his father's thing and he also has a younger son who is a sushi chef as well and it's sort of his story of like I'm the logical choice, but I can't do it because of my older brother. And it's a very sweet, beautiful movie. Everybody in it's really just the nicest people. It's just, it's a really, really compelling documentary about this, this man who just gave his life to crafting food and and the art of it and how he really wants his sons to sort of hold up his lineage and know kind of a pointed tale of family relationships between father and son especially uh, somewhere like japan where there's a little bit more importance placed on that legacy than i'd say there would be in the states it's just it's an excellent excellent documentary and then for my other one i have an animated movie that i uh i've watched several times now because my daughter loves it i have cloudy with a chance of meatballs i think it is just super colorful super fun great vocal performances really silly idea but it works great uh it's one of those few cgi animated movies that aren't pixar that really works sequel not so much but the first one i'd argue still is a really solid fun family movie uh and for my bad ones just to, to get through them really quick i also have another animated movie which given the cast given the people involved you'd expect it to be this fun raunchy comedy which it is a raunchy movie but i'd argue the laughs are very few far in between and it ultimately is just kind of a a mess it feels like it's a bunch of teenage kids who got a budget to make a movie and that is sausage party 
just stupid. You know, everything you've heard about it, the Nick Kroll's the douche or the food orgy or anything like that, it is in there, and uh, it just falls flat basically the entire time. And it's not a very inspired looking either. And then the other one I have is uh, run-of-the-mill rom-com when those things were a big thing called No Reservations with Catherine Zeta-Jones and uh, Aaron Eckhart, where Catherine Zeta-Jones is this hard-nosed, really world-renowned chef in New York. And then her sister dies, which now she has to take care of her 10-year-old niece. And, oh, no, so, you know, she doesn't know what to do. And they hire a new, like, head, not a head chef, but her a new, like, second chef at her restaurant. It's Aaron Eckhart, and he's kind of new and jazzy and loves Italian food and blah, blah, blah. Will they, won't they? Oh, no, what's going to happen? And it's just the most formulaic bullshit you've ever seen. Have you seen Made in Manhattan? Have you seen uh, any of those fucking shitty romance movies that came out at the time? Then you've seen this. I haven't seen No Reservations. I have seen all the other ones, though, including I just watched Euro Dreams of Sushi right before we recorded, actually, because I hadn't seen it. So I'm like, I might as well watch it now. It seems like it's a solid pick. It's also it's 82 minutes long. It's very compact. And yeah, I really like how it explores sort of this, especially the idea of mastery. And being a master of your craft and how much that can kind of toll on your family life where Euro kind of mentions like, yeah, I wasn't much of a father to my kids because I would be out before they got up and come back when they were asleep. It does a really good job, like I think, exploring the, the toll that that kind of takes on a person. Um, but then, yeah, I love Clyde with a Chance of Meatballs. Lord Miller, that was their first big movie. Where it's just like, oh, Lisa is great. And then they went on to do like the 21 Jump Street movies and the Lego movie. And it's been a really fun um, sort of uh, directing duo. And Sausage Party is a movie that like I remember liking more at the time. I think just because I like the idea of, oh, it's kind of this movie spoofing Pixar a bit. Because it feels like it's kind of doing the Pixar um, basic thing of just like, oh, hey, it's a bunch of things coming to life when humans don't look at it. Uh, but it really just leans way more on, like, the, oh, we're cartoons and we're saying dirty things that, like, South Park had done, like, 20 years prior? And I think it's, like, such a revolutionary thing (laughs) that cartoons can curse. It's just like, I don't know, there's more to this bit than you could do. Um, I don't hate it necessarily, but, yeah, it seemed kind of like a waste opportunity, ultimately. Uh, Yeah, I had seen three of those movies. Um, I did not see No Reservation because it was boilerplate, as you went over, Adam. Uh, I've seen Sausage Party. I liked it at the time. Um, It's definitely not a food movie in the way that we've been promoting them. It it, it is an R-rated movie. I remember the hook of it actually being like a commentary on religion and belief was kind of interesting and novel. But I think its vulgarity kind of like overshadows everything. So I'm, I'm I kind of liked it, but I don't blame people who really dislike it, especially with like you know the cast just doing their own thing and the studio going out of business. That's not fun. Uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi is lovely. I su- saw that. It is a fantastic, especially when there's so many food documentaries out now. That movie feels so meticulously made and the way it explores like mastery and like perfection in food in such a unique way made it like really engaging. Like there's that scene where that guy like makes an omelet that gets Jiro's approval. And he said he'd been working on it for 10 years. And like, you feel the joy in that he was able to make it and it made him cry. But you're also like, Oh my God, that took you 10 years. (laughs) Just, just like, there's so much to it. I think that that is very like enjoyable and likable and, it definitely makes you drool, but also like shows you like, yes, this is perfection. Is it worth it? 
And Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, I love. It's a fantastic animated movie. It's gorgeous to look at. It's playful. It's colorful. All the cast is really fun. I think it gives you everything you would want in that kind of surprise way, especially based on like a children's book. And it turns out it had all this potential with the right people involved and the right amount of hearts that really makes it fun and also makes you want to eat. Yes. And uh, now I'll uh, go ahead and say my choices here. Uh, my two good are both uh, movies that are kind of about preparing food, but also about kind of like mixing in uh, the relationships between a family at the same time. Uh, first, I'll go with A Big Night, which also stars Stanley Tucci, uh, who plays an Italian man in the 1950s, who, along with his brother, played by Tony Shalhoub, started up a small Italian restaurant that's kind of struggling. And I think it's a really great exploration of, one, I mean, it's the most Italian fucking movie. Like, it's up there with Moonstruck. It's just, like, the most Italian. I had to do it. I couldn't deny my birthright to recommend Big Night out there to people. But besides that, despite the sort of over-the-top Italian accents that can kind of be there, it's also just a really good movie about kind of being a small business struggling to make food and how, once again, that those relationships kind of uh, grow from there with, like, the people across the street who are running the bigger restaurant, like Ian Holm and Isabella Rossellini, and also his, um, Stanley Tucci's relationship with uh, the Mini Driver character. Um, I think it's just like a really fun, small independent movie that still has like a lot of um, great big emotional stuff, particularly the ending scene of that movie is perfect. I'm not going to spoil what it is, but it's so simple and beautiful an exploration about just people connecting over food. It's stellar. Um, and the other one I have is a, the alternate choice we almost did for the show, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is directed by Ang Lee. It's about um, this... A retired chef who lives in Taiwan. He's a widower and he's trying to connect with his three daughters who live under him. And they all have th various different um, sort of stations in their life. One is like um, a college student. The other one is more of like a, a more successful business person at an airline. The other is also trying to be a chef in the same way of her father. And what I love about that movie is it has won such great food cinematography. The opening sequence of this movie will make you drool with how good the food looks. But also it shows an interesting way where like all these people are connected by the meals that they have together. The biggest thing they have is like the, the dinner they have as, as a family every night where they try and connect with each other. But they all are on such different paths and the way their lives go is so fascinating where you think certain people are all put together at the start of the movie. As the movie goes along, it's like, oh, that person went on a completely different successful route. The other one, they're kind of failing and some of this other stuff. It's such a great little dramedy that also just really shows like how food can bring people together under the right circumstance. Uh, and then my bad, uh, one is a really, it's one I kind of recommend as a funny bad movie. It's a horror film called Ice Cream Man, which stars Clint Howard as the titular ice cream man, who is basically like killing people and putting their body parts in the ice cream. And it's about really like a bunch of these kids, like small 10 year old kids who are trying to, stop this ice cream man from killing people and it's such a bizarre movie it has so many like poor choices in filmmaking that's like kind of just fascinating i almost like i said kind of recommend it for the silliness of it and clint howard is going full on with the way he says stuff like oh i need some grenadine for my ice cream treats it's it's so fascinating it's a movie i kind of want to cover on this show because it's so weird uh but then the other one i have is a movie that like isn't that memorable, but I just wanted to shout it because I think I'm part of the only audience who's ever seen this movie. It's called Bone in the Throat. It's based on the Anthony Bourdain novel that he did. And it, it's basically about, like, this uh, big restaurant in London that has a bunch of run-ins with, like, gangsters and Tom Wilkinson's in it. 
and it's this kind of forgettable movie, but at the same time, I realized when I was looking at food movies, I saw this at South by Southwest, and I realized it only screened at that screening I went to. Like, it's never been, like, theatrically released or VOD released or put on, like, straight-to-video or anything. It's only screened that one time. So I'm part of this one audience that's seen this fucking movie. And I get why it's never been screened anywhere and why you all don't have to avoid it because you don't have any access to it. Because it's a boring, dull movie that just shows even a big movie with the pedigree of Anthony Bourdain can completely not exist. Like, at all. Okay, so I have seen one of those um, i bet you can guess which one um, <laughs> were you at south by southwest <laughs> yes he was at that screening was this podcast destined to be fate yep tom wilkinson is my dad that's the first name thomas um, big night <laughs> big night and eat drink man woman i have never seen and obviously i haven't seen bone in the throat uh but yeah ice cream man it's it's ridiculous ridiculous it is so ridiculous but it is absolutely one of those you have to see it it's so bad it's good movies uh clint howard it's like in a weird way it's the role he was born to play <laughs> like it's, it's so bizarre it's so stupid and the one kid has an obvious fat suit yes and it's like the worst fat suit i've ever seen I've it's not even a fat suit it's like they just put a towel underneath his shirt it's like a pillow it's like a pillow clearly a rigid pillow underneath this kid's shirt and yet i'm, I'm there for it the whole time yeah that, that movie's fucking batshit crazy but it's awesome uh, I have only seen your two good movies. I have not seen Ice Cream Man, not that I would be against it. And when I heard about Bones to the Throat, I was like, that's weird. Why have I not heard of that? And, well, now we know the secret origin story. Um, I saw Big Night because Stanley Tucci just has a show on HBO Max called Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. And if you liked him as Paul Child, this is him going all out about how much he loves food. And that inspired me to see Big Night. Um, and I liked Big Night. I think it's really charming. I love the brotherly relationship between him and Tony Shalhoub. I think there's a lot of charm and natural feel to how it, it's displayed and the time period, though I think it suffers a little bit because it was his first directing debut. I don't think it can like be as showy and as rich as it could be. But I do like it. I just watched Eat, Drink, Man, Woman because it was the other choice for the show. And I was really curious about it as it is also listed as like one of the best foreign food movies. And it's a really nice slice of life film. Uh, you have a lot of these different plots going on with the different daughters and uh, their various ways they get into relationships. But I really love the core with the father and how he just cooks all the time and everyone respects him for cooking all this food. And people love what he does. But he just has these doubts in themselves or how he can connect to his daughters. I, I love that, like, he, there's the one little girl that he says, like, my mom makes bad food. He goes, like, I'll make great food for you. And he's like, so I made you spare ribs and I made You're you right. chicken, <laughs> chicken noodle soup and I made you bitter bitter winter melon and i made you this and this and it's just like oh this guy this guy it's like i can really see why like ang lee got really big from making this story because it i think it is very personal in a very very impactful way right and that opening sequence right scott where they're making the food over oh, the opening credits oh, right oh, oh my oh my god <laughs> if if binging with babish he could spend an entire year cooking all the recipes from that fucking movie oh my god there are so many things 
Yes, yes. And now, Scott, you have some choices of your own. Yes, I do. Uh, so for my good recommendations, um, they're kind of similar. The first one is the 1987 Foreign Academy Award winner, uh, Babette's Feast. It is a Danish film directed by Gabriel Axel, and it's about two sisters named uh, Martine and Philippa who dedicate their life to their father and Christianity who denied suitors for years. One rainy day, a French woman named Babette appears in front of their front door who was a friend to one of the suitors, and they do the Christian thing by letting her stay. And then she wins the lottery and decides to spend all the money on this grand feast for everyone in this really small village. It's just a gorgeous, beautifully told tale about piety and passion and how you create life for yourself. And what defines it as one of the best food movies out there is that it subtly expresses how, like, the power of artistry and just removing restraint can create all of these wonderful, enriching memories and emotions just from, like, people experiencing food for the first time. A, a Danish guy eats a pie and he's like, oh my god, what the fuck is that? <laughs> it has one of my favorite endings seen also in all of cinema, by the way, Babette and the sisters come together and talk. I... I absolutely love love it. If if you like that emotional scene in Ratatouille about like the chef learning about like oh my god this is what food is this is that's this whole movie. If you give it time to ripen, it'll just warm your heart, and you can watch it on HBO Max. And my other choice is another foreign Academy Award winner from Denmark. This time from last year, it is Thomas Vinderberg's Another Round. Um, and if you haven't heard about this movie, it's a group of teaching buddies led by Maz Mikkelsen who are all going through a midlife crisis, wondering what's gone wrong with their lives. They get the idea to follow a Danish professor's theory of living a better life if you were just drunk all the time. And you get to see them get drunk and just the highs and lows about how it affects their life, their school, their work, their relationships, and just how, watch it all play out. It was one of my favorite movies of last year, and I think it has, like, the most nuanced look at alcoholism I've ever seen in a movie because it just recognized that it's not that alcohol is good or bad all the time. It's more like drinking is just ubiquitous in our society and in Dana society, and we craft so many major moments to the feeling of being drunk or drinking at holidays or special events or huge memories. And it's very, like, a very talky and joyous kind of film that's also, like, very real about the fear of addiction or how you can fuck up your life. And I think that just makes it all the more personable and impactful the way it explores these things and it also has this really incredible amazing ending that has a big impact so if you wanted to see another like oscar nominated film that's not just poignant and real but also really fun another round is where, what you want to see and you can watch that on hulu uh for my bad movies i have picked uh 2010's eat pray love uh, Eat, Pray, Love is best on the best-selling memoir by Elizabeth Gilbert, who goes across the world to find herself by going to Italy and India and Indonesia to do all the above. And, man, it, it was right at the time, but it is one of the most navel-gazing, entitled-feeling movies you'll ever watch. There's this really stacked cast, but so much time is dedicated to to listening to Julia Roberts play a very insufferable character who seems to have everything but is unhappy and is trying to find herself. And it's a movie about self-love that's just brim with all this faux feel-good self-love aphorisms that just center around someone just being very self-centered and this expensive, obnoxious cultural tourism. And if I can go off on a little rant here, not to dismiss you, Thomas, but um, they only focus on food when they go to Italy and I'm sorry, but Italian food is everywhere. It's you. It's so popular everywhere you go. It's like, okay, you ate pasta and pizza. 
big whoop. Anyone can see that. The fact that you ignore the food in India and Indonesia, which have so many different flavor and techniques and history and cultural cinemans, oh, you fucked up movie. Uh, it's so bad. Uh, to quote uh, film critic and podcaster Brian Salisbury, eat, pray, love, can eat shit and die. And then my other pick is a bit controversial. It is the 2013 film Drinking Buddies. And a lot of people love this because it is a Joe Swanberg mumblecore romantic film. And I was excited to see that as I was really getting into craft beer at the time. And it's about like these two groups of people who develop relationships at this brewery. And it is just one of the most boring, unbearably dull films I've ever watched. Uh, you have Jake Johnson and Olivia Wilde and Anna Kendrick and Ron Livingston who are all connected, but it's that problem where this movie feels so naturalistic to the point where it's just listless and flat and everyone reacts in a very flat and blank matter to anything. Like the fact that, that they work for a brewery doesn't matter. Like there's not really any consideration for alcohol. It's just this really bad romantic comedy that's kind of like, if you know like the last 20 minutes of a romantic comedy where like people realizing they're not good for each other so they have to get with someone else, it's like that, but stretched out to 90 minutes. It's all improv and it's so low key to the point of just being listless. And I cannot recommend it one iota. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm still recovering a bit from you insulting my fucking culture, you son of a bitch. But... I, <laughs> Combined <laughs> with those drinking movies, I know. <laughs> um, I mean, the only one of those I've seen is Another Round, which I a hundred percent support. That movie's great. I agree that it has a really interesting nuanced view on alcoholism. And what's so interesting is like it has like such that interesting nuanced look, and there's actually like a lot of emotional depth about that. But yet, it also has one of the most rousing endings I've seen in a movie recently. That also feels like it could just be out of like a drunken eighties comedy. Like, you're expecting Rodney Dangerfield to show up just like, hey, everybody, let's drink! <laughs> like, at the end of that fucking movie. <laughs> but still, it works. It so works despite that, and it's so fucking good. I, I love all of that shit. I have not seen uh, any of those. Uh, so, not gonna be much help on this. Although, I have been interested in seeing another round. Um, a, I love Matt Milkson, and B, it, it's gotten such high marks. It's one of those that's always on my radar, but I always forget about it. So, you know, this nice uh, sort of memory refresher to check it out. So I definitely will do that. Expand your cinematic palette. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, and, you know, that's the end of the segment, but we usually like to end by repeating our titles. Okay, my good titles were Euro Dreams of Sushi and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and my bad was No Reservations and Sausage Party. And uh, my two good picks were Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and Big Night. And then my bad picks were Ice Cream Man and Bone in the Throat. And my good films were Babette's Feast and Another Round. And my bad films are Eat, Pray, Love, and Drinking Buddies. Yes, and uh, we encourage you all to submit your double review recommendations for food movies through the various channels we'll comment on here as we start exiting the show that we'll get into our picking for next week. Stay tuned for that. In the meantime, though, some people to thank, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water for more of his great stuff, especially on Twitter. And you'll find a link tree over there where you can uh, find his Instagram and other stuff. Um, and we also want to thank our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash for just 
$1 a month, you all get to vote in polls to for movies and topics that we do for the show and also listen to bonus podcasts uh, that we put out, at least one a month, though we do plenty of other bonus ones. Uh, and to illustrate that, this week uh, you'll be able to vote for our uh, December topic. We have two options here. We've been kind of mulling over for a while, and we decided why not uh, have the Patreons choose between these two. There's either uh, actor directorial debuts, so an actor transitioning into being a director, versus musicians turned actors. So an example of a musician uh, actually getting in front of a big film uh, and uh, basically being the star of it. And uh, also look out for, we'll have a bonus podcast where we uh, do our show Telebillion, that we do in our rotation, where uh, Adam and I each cover a show the other person recommended. And uh, for that episode, which will be out by the end of November, we have two shows that are having uh, second seasons coming up very soon. We have uh, my recommendation to Adam, which was How To with John Wilson, and his recommendation to me, which is The Witcher. So we'll be watching the first seasons of both those shows and uh, talking about them. Yeah, I'm really interested uh, about what you're going to feel about The Witcher. I really, really am. Uh, we will see. I think this might be one of the ones that you might have issues with. I don't know. Well, we'll be curious. To, and I have the same thing with How To with John Wilson. I'm very curious to see uh, what you think of that. And that'll be available to any of our patrons. We really appreciate, uh, including Scott, who's one of them. Thank you so much for uh, being a patron. Also, being a guest on the show. Please, Scott, plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Who, me? Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, you can find me on social media like Twitter, where I go by Scott PJ Thoughts. That is Scott with two T's, letter P, letter J, Thoughts. Uh, if you are interested more in my opinions on food, you can find me on the website porchdrinking.com, where I talk about uh, beer and pop culture and just various breakdowns. And also, uh, I am now a writer at the website FilmCred, where you can hopefully see some of my articles that are now playing out. And if you are a Patreon of FilmCred, you can also read their newsletter that I helped pitch for November, which is Cozy Cred, and a special article I wrote for them. Don't let anybody write on FilmCred these days, I swear. Uh, anybody do their stupid things on there. Not me! No, no that's true. Not everybody. They have some standards. Do you wanna, that's a good point. Do you want to join the party of idiots? <laughs> no. No, I don't, I don't have time for that shit. I barely have time to do this. Good point. Good point. Well, there's Fair such enough. short shows that don't go on forever. Uh, but uh, for more of our own individual stuff, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDVPod, where we post uh, stuff about related to the show and all sorts of updates and such. And also you can submit feedback to us either there or at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, and uh, if you can't support us on the Patreon for the $1 a month, that's cool. Uh, you can help us with a one-time purchase over on the T Public store for the ESO Network. Uh, there's a link in the description for that, where uh, you can buy a mug or a t-shirt, all sorts of other stuff with our lovely logo on it. Also, there's a Black Friday sale that's going on this week that we're releasing this given Thanksgiving. So uh, that'll be starting, I believe, on the Wednesday. Uh, right after this comes out, so you'll be able to even buy our stuff at a bit of a discounted price, though we still get a bit of a kickback, so it really helps out if they do what, Adam? Buy our merch! Buy our merch! Oh, Julia Child, my favorite <laughs> spokesperson we've ever had. <laughs> it looks so perfectly. She can sell anything! Even our shirts! Uh, but... For more of my own individual antics, you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, at Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at uh, both film-cred.com. Yes, they even allow me. 
to write things out there, just like Scott. And also on my blog, marianithomas.wordpress.com, where for the first time in a while, I did write a review over there. I was compelled to for Ghostbusters Afterlife, the recent release, the new Ghostbusters film. I was so compelled to write about how much um, I thought it was a depressing example of how culture and film has completely dissipated into nostalgic bullshit. So read about that. I thought you were inspired by the humbling power of Julie Powell and blogging and how, how she tried to work so hard to make a blog that people could read. Look, we all want Julie Powell's thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's the main thing we want from her. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, for more of our antics, uh, you can uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? Uh, and uh, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for including a bunch of episodes we did before we joined ESO. And another thing else, if you can't buy the merch or you can't support us on the Patreon, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around that gets us more visibility on the internet. Make us like the Julie Powells of movie podcasting. Help us out. Yeah, I mean, whatever it takes at this point. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like we're asking for a lot sometimes, and really we're not. We're just asking for a click of a fucking button. I mean, the holidays are coming up. Don't you want us to eat? Don't you want us to be able to buy presents for people? Help us out here. Good God. <laughs> please help. Adam has a portable crutch. He's like, please. <laughs> I want to live to next Christmas. Please. For God's <laughs> sakes. I want to buy a goose. <laughs> yes. Buy a goose that he can cook. But now... It's time we, we officially end the show with our picking, as we do every week, where each week Adam and I, uh, we switch up on the quality, but we have uh, two good picks and two bad picks, uh, where we uh, have two related to uh, the topic that we're covering, and we've signed numbers between 1 and 10 for each of our picks, and uh, us, or a guest like Scott, uh, picks them between 1 and 10, and whatever that's closest to gets us our good, and then eventually our bad pick as well. And keep in mind, uh, there is still the Godfather rule, where Adam and I each have a single veto in our back pocket to use. So if we hear a choice from the other person, like for example, uh, I have the two bad picks. If Adam hears my initial choice, and he says, you know what, I don't want to cover that one, he can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli. Thus, uh, his veto is used, and that particular choice is not taken, but we do have to go with whatever the other alternate choice is for this next topic that we're doing next week we decided uh thanks to our patrons at patreon.com slash gedbpod you all voted for uh, we wanted to cover an actor of some sort who was in house of gucci which is coming out soon this very week we're actually posting this episode and it was between al pacino and the ultimate winner which was a person that shares um one of our first names adam driver no relation no relation, no, of course, yes, yeah. not at all. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, he's very interesting. Despite only working for about, like, ten years in the industry, he has had such a fascinating career that we thought was appropriate for an episode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, it, what's really exciting about it is I'm not as well-versed in sort of his career and filmography um, as I would be against the uh, ultimate loser, Al Pacino. So it's kind of exciting to go in kind of fresh. I'm very honored to be part of this selection because I think Adam Driver is my favorite actor right now. Oh, well, that'll be very interesting. So, Adam has the two good choices. I have the two bad ones. So please, Scott, for his two good ones, pick them between one and ten. Well, let's re reflect on the way that meals are eaten and go with three. 
All right. At number two, I have a movie I have not seen, but I've heard good things about it. Um, I, it's one of those that's always kind of been on my list and circulated. And I've just never got around to it. I have from 2016. Uh, he's not the star, but he's a major supporting role. I have Midnight Special starring Michael Shannon. Wow. Yes, I have seen Midnight Special. I quite like that movie quite a bit. I'm curious to revisit that. So you know what, Adam? I'm not taking the cannoli on that. Okay, good. And that at my other choice, which was number eight, I have a movie that I really want to talk about, but being that we're two white dudes might be problematic. Uh, but I think it's a great, great movie. It's 2018's uh, Black Klansman, directed by Spike Lee. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I really love that movie when it came out. I'd be curious to revisit that now, especially since it's uh, very centered around cops and stuff. That would have been potentially very interesting to see how that would have gone. But still, from what I remember, I remember really digging that movie. For my two bad choices now, Scott, pick a number between one and ten, please. Let's go again with number three. Okay. Over at number one, I have a movie where I know Adam Driver was not the first choice for this role, but then again, this movie went through so many infamous production problems that's become so much more famous than the movie, which ultimately kind of came out to a whimper. I'm kind of fascinated to see it. I have The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not taking the cannoli on that because I'm very fascinated by that one, too. Uh, I mean, that's been in production hell for, what, 20, 30 years at this point? Right. And then it came out two years ago and everyone was like, eh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so there will be a lot to talk about with that regardless. But over on the other side of things, over at number seven, um, I had a movie that has such an interesting cast too where it's like not just Adam Driver but it was a big ensemble comedy it looked kind of good and apparently I heard it was also not very good I had uh This Is Where I Leave You the family comedy starring like him and Jason Bateman and Tina Fey it was a big cast and everyone was just like eh I never even heard of that one <laughs> yeah it's a movie that does not really exist anymore <laughs> it kind of oh, came okay. and completely went <laughs> Well, it's kind of like compared to all these great actors. It's like, oh, Noah Baumbach and Spike Lee and Steven Spielberg and J.J. Abrams and Jeff Nichols. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's Sean Levy. Yeah, he's right. You have Sean Levy of Real Steel and Night of the Museum. And Free Guy. (laughs) And Free Guy. Uh Yes. Uh, Yeah, so that'll be interesting. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote and Midnight Special. Two uh, very different films from Mr. Driver. We'll talk about next time. But until then, everybody, uh, a bomb apple seed. Stanley Tucci. Lord <laughs> <laughs> live the Tucci. Good night, everyone, and save the liver. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.